This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 33, The New Heavens and the New Earth. Before I get to today's topic, last episode, which has been a few weeks ago, uh, we've had Thanksgiving break, and then I've been extremely busy, too busy to put out an episode. But the last time I said that I would announce an upcoming series, and so I, I know that you've just been in suspense over this, and I'm going to put you at ease. I'm going to release all that tension that has been building up as you've been anticipating this new series that's coming out. Next episode, I'm going to start a new series entitled Favored Cheat. Favored Cheat. It's a it's about the life of Jacob. Kind of a biographical study. I've done a few series that are biographical in nature before. Uh, I haven't been able to get as in-depth as I hope to with Jacob. And again, I won't just plow through straight from beginning to end, but there will be breaks in the series where we'll have interviews, conversations, uh, single standing episodes, and things like that, like we did when uh, we had the series on the judges. But I'm looking forward to getting back into a series that's been several months, and it helps me keep the flow uh, when I don't have any ideas for episodes, a series is really nice because I, you know, I know what's coming up next. So, with that said, I want to get into today's topic, kind of a a controversial topic. Not kind of; it's very controversial right now. And I'll talk about the controversy at the end of the episode. But um, I'm going to start by just introducing the idea that I'm dress- addressing today which is the new heavens and the new earth. Simply put, the new heavens and the new earth for the Christian is heaven. is what we typically refer to as heaven and where we plan to spend an eternity with the Father one day. It's spoken of in several places, and I want to start where the phrase first appears in Isaiah, Although I think all scholars agree, or most should agree, that this isn't intended to just refer to heaven or even refer to heaven at all in Isaiah. That's where it first appears, and the New Testament writers pick up with that symbol or that language and apply it to heaven later on. Here are the two references from Isaiah. The first one's in Isaiah chapter 65, beginning in verse 17 where Isaiah says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You'll recognize some of that language carried over into the New Testament, and applied to heaven. But in the context here, Isaiah is talking about post-Babylonian captivity. Now, Isaiah lived before Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon, but he predicted all of these things in his prophecy that because of her sins, Israel would be taken captive in Babylon, Jerusalem destroyed, there would be a period of time where they would be in exile, but they would return home. And one day through that people, a king or messiah or special servant would rise up 
and establish a government that would never be destroyed, a kingdom not of this world, a peaceable kingdom. And Isaiah describes that kingdom throughout his prophecy. You see it described as the house of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 2. It's described as the peaceable kingdom where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and and all of that in Isaiah chapter 11. Some of that language is here in Isaiah 65. And uh, here it's the same thing described in terms of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, how do I know this isn't about heaven? Well, you look at the context, and I've already pointed that out. It wasn't on Isaiah's readers' minds. It's not at all what he was talking about in this chapter. But also, as you go on down through the chapter, you see things that are a part of this new heaven and new earth that we don't expect to see in heaven, especially when we look at verse 20, where he refers to sinners. They will be accursed, but they will be in this new heaven and new earth, and in that place they will be accursed. That's not what you expect to see in heaven uh, in eternity. Uh, You can look at Revelation 21, verse 8, and many, many other passages of Scripture that teach that the those whose names are not written in the book of life will not be in the new heavens and the new earth in terms of heaven. Now, Isaiah mentions it again in the next chapter. And just, just to set the language up, I'm going to go ahead and read that reference as well, although it applies to the Messianic kingdom again, as it does in chapter 65. This is Isaiah 66, verse 22, essentially the end of the prophecy of Isaiah As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So, he's referring to this messianic kingdom, and in the last example, he was emphasizing the joy of that kingdom, and here, he seems to be emphasizing the stability of the kingdom. Still, it's not about heaven, although when you go over to the New Testament, This phrase, new heavens and new earth, or new heaven and earth, is picked up and applied or reapplied to a new idea, which is heaven, eternal life, the inheritance of the people of God. Two main places where this uh, occurs. The first is 2 Peter chapter 3, after Peter talks about the disillusion of the current heavens and earth. He speaks of a new heaven and earth in chapter 3, verse 13. It reads, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not a whole lot of detail there. There are some things we'll talk about later in the context, but that's the verse in which Peter refers to heaven as uh, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. John in Revelation is the last person to use this phrase and this is probably the the most familiar place where you'll find it. This is Revelation 21 verses 1 and following. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, that's the one we're living in now, had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So I, I believe Peter and John are borrowing terms from Isaiah to describe a dramatic change in the order of things, which is what Isaiah was describing. But in Isaiah's case, it was the Messianic kingdom, uh, the church, uh, Christ's, Christ's uh, kingdom. And in Peter and John, or rather in Second Peter and in Revelation, the dramatic change is from the current physical heaven and earth to a new heaven and earth in heaven. So what's the big deal? You know, you may be listening to this saying, I've heard this all my life. I believe in heaven. We're going there. I don't know much about it, but I plan to be there. And uh, Christ died so that I could have that opportunity. What's the big deal? Of late, and I say of late, it's now been, you know, 10, 15 years that this has become a popular idea. People have been thinking about the nature of the new heavens and the new earth more and trying to get more detail and describe it um, in more detail and they have come up with some interesting ideas now I don't mean to say that these ideas are new uh, some of them can be found in some of our preachers uh, in the churches of Christ from 19th century. Not not all, but there's a few examples. And you can go back to the early centuries of the church and find some references to these ideas I'm going to share with you. But the champion of them that has brought them to the forefront today is an Anglican scholar named N.T. Wright. And I'm going to read from a couple of his books. I'm saving one of the excerpts for later when I talk about another idea. But to just set up this new idea, which is, again, I realize is not a new idea, but a newly popular idea, I'm going to just quote N.T. Wright from his book, Surprised by Hope. And this, I think, in summary, describes what this idea is very well, better than I could describe it in my own words. Now, here's what he says. God's space and ours, heaven and earth, in other words, are, though very different, not far away from one another. God's space and ours interlock and intersect in a whole variety of ways, even while they retain, for the moment at least, their separate and distinct identities and roles. One day, they will be joined in a quite new way, open and visible to one another, married together forever. Now, Wright is interpreting Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. And he's saying instead of heaven being a place that we go to when we die or go to after the resurrection and judgment, heaven is a place that God will bring down and merge with a renewed earth. Uh, he believes what Second Peter 3 says about 
the earth and the elements melting and dissolving with an intense heat. But out of that will not be annihilation of the earth, but a renewal of the earth of some kind, to which he will bring heaven down. And so, in a manner of speaking, heaven will be on earth. Again, I've got another excerpt to read that will explain it further, but I'm just going to let that serve as the summary. So we're not talking necessarily about a new earth, but to be more technical about it, a renewed earth. Now, is this supported by the Bible? I already mentioned that this is an interpretation of Revelation 21. There are a few other passages that are brought up in this context, but that's the main one. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Uh, in addition to that, there is this overall story, uh, and this is really where this idea comes from, and I think a lot of people miss this because they want to find the proof text for it, but it's the overarching motif or theme that you find in the Bible of God starting out with human life on earth. It flourished in the Garden of Eden, but we were banned from the Garden and then when you see heaven described at the end, it's a city brought back into a garden. So the garden and the city is combined. Maybe the garden representing heavenly aspects and the city representing the best of human aspects. So that kind of uh, theme that you see throughout the Bible also lends itself to this idea or interpretation of the new heavens and the new earth being God bringing heaven down to a renewed earth after uh, judgment. Also involved in this is the resurrection. It's stated that because heaven will be populated by resurrected bodies, it's not going to be some airy, spiritual, ethereal, ethereal, sorry, I knew I mispronounced that, ethereal space, but it's got to have some physicality to it. Now, over against that, you'll have Paul's phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, spiritual bodies, referring to resurrection. I don't know what that means, but it does sound spiritual. And his statement in verse 20, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, so, or verse 50, 15 verse 50. And you can look at those references and, and ponder them, though you'll never plumb their depths. Those are some of the ideas that go into this, and I don't want to oversimplify it, although I don't have time to really do it, or the expertise. I don't know this position really well. I just know a different position that I'm going to present over against it, which is basically this. Heaven will be a completely new place for us. God is there now. Christ is preparing rooms for us or space for us there, preparing for our arrival. And this earth will be completely destroyed, and by that I mean annihilated, not renewed. And God will be done with this universe, the earth and all the physical space that we inhabit or can potentially inhabit. That's the old heavens and earth. Now, why 
do I argue that? Well, I'm, I'm going to set forth about six or seven reasons here that cause me, that give me pause to accepting this idea of the new heavens and new earth that we've been talking about from N.T. Wright and many, many, many others. Uh, here's the first question I have. The Bible says that the present world is under a curse and that it's waiting for destruction. We talk about we talked about themes in the Bible. This is a major theme in the Bible that begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and you read this curse in Genesis 3:17, cursed is the ground because of you. By all indications, scriptural and scientific, the earth is winding down. It's in entropy, it's headed towards disorder. It seems to have an expiration date, and every day that passes brings us closer to it. So that's the first thing. We're under a curse, this earth is under a curse, and there's no sign that it will be completely uh, renewed in any way. It's not headed in that direction. Now there are some passages of Scripture that talk about the renewal of all things, Acts 3, 20 and 21, uh, the regeneration in Matthew 19, I'm aware of those passages, but they're very vague and they don't necessarily refer to the created order. Some will refer back to Romans chapter 8. I'm trying to show you that I'm aware of these and I've studied these and I've looked at them. In Romans 8, verse 20 and following, creation is groaning and waiting and anticipating the coming of Christ when he will renew all things they're waiting for this day to come, deliverance through Jesus Christ. But it never says that they're waiting for their own renewal or their own redemption, just that the creation is waiting to see two things in particular. Number one, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, not their own freedom from the bondage, but the freedom of the children of God, and secondly, they're waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So creation is groaning, this is the curse we are under, and they're waiting for anticipating freedom and release from this bondage, but not their own release, that is never said. What is stated specifically is the freedom of the glory of the children of God and the adoption of sons or redemption of our bodies. The passage is not about this universe or a renewed earth. It's about us, about God's children. So that's the first thing is this world is winding down. It's headed for destruction. There is an expiration date on the world. Number two, prophecy points to a total disillusion of the entire universe as we know it. Now, before I can ever buy into this idea of a renewed earth, I have to have some answers on a few of these passages of Scripture that point towards total destruction, I mean annihilation. And here they are. I'll read a few of them. This is Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26, which is quoted again in Hebrews chapter 1. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, 
you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Jesus makes a similar statement in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then another one that I like, uh, which is a quotation of Haggai's prophecy in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, is in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. Uh, Haggai's prophecy says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And um, the writer of the book of Hebrews draws this conclusion from that prophecy. Again, this is Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. Talking about the current world order. Things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he seems to be saying that the physical world created by God, it's going to, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be shaken. Uh, it's going to be removed. That seems to point, if you remove something, it's gone. It's gone forever. Another passage. Um, in the judgment scene, John sees in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, uh, a great white throne of judgment appears with the judge of all the earth sitting on it. And I quote, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. They could not be found anywhere. And finally, we come to 2 Peter 3. Second uh, Peter 3 most of the time, people will go to verse 10 just to kind of proof text this on either side of the, of the debate. But if you, I want to look at more than just that one verse because I think there's several that put this in the context of an annihilation of the current um, order of things. Here's verse 7. By the same word, the word that uh, called the flood to come and destroy the earth with water, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now skip down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Other translations read destroyed. I'll come back to that word in a moment. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Sounds like total disillusion. The, the end of the entire universe. Not just this earth, but the sun, moon, and stars, the planets, the galaxies, every material thing God has created. Look at the words again. I'm going to try to go back over these verses. Pass away. Uh, pass away. Be removed. Um, no place found for them. Destruction burned up, dissolved, set on fire, melted, melting as they burn. Now, let me come back to 2 Peter 3, verse 10, because 
this verse confuses a lot of people, and like I said, it's used as a proof text for either side of the debate. And so I, th I think I need to talk about it for just a moment. Uh, there's a variant here, which means that the ancient manuscripts have a slightly different wording. This is very rare, but there is slightly different wording so that we're not 100% sure how to translate that verse. And that's why you'll have destroyed or burned up in uh, King James, and then you'll have exposed, as I read in the ESV, and NIV has laid bare. Now, we can hang on that one word and debate it and say, well, exposed leaves room or disclosed or laid bare leaves room for a renewed earth or that it should really be burned up, as you see in the King James. But when you put it into the context, you have all these other words like stored up for fire and destruction and pass away and burned up and dissolved and melt as they burn. You put it into context, it sounds like a total dissolution of the current heaven and earth. So that's the second problem I have with this renewed earth idea. The third one is that John and Peter spoke of a new heaven and earth using a Greek term that, mean, that, that indicates something entirely different. Now there are two Greek words for new, and the first one is naos, which means new as, oppo as opposed to old or a new edition of the same thing. That's not the word that's used in 2 Peter 3.13 or in Revelation 21, 1-3. The word used there for new is the Greek word kainos, which means new in quality or kind. In substance, it is unprecedented. It was previously non-existent. I think that is pretty pretty serious there. It's the same word used to describe the new covenant in my blood, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. It's totally new, different, different material, unprecedented. So we're not talking about earth 2.0 here. We're talking about something that hasn't existed before when we talk about our heavenly dwelling place. Number four, when the Bible speaks of us dwelling in heaven, it's talking about us dwelling in a place that is not here. And I'm thinking primarily of John 14, 1 through 3 in this connection. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is speaking about taking us to where he currently is, which is not on earth, but is at the right hand of God. Now, I don't want to oversimplify, as I've said before. The argument that I am thinking about here and considering doesn't say that Jesus is hidden on earth somewhere and he's going to take us to the secret location. It says that he is away from us and that he's preparing for us to dwell with God and and that he's going to bring heaven down to earth and connect them, intersect them uh, in some way. So I realize that just that verse standing on its own 
will not convince somebody one way or the other, but I'm hoping that alongside these others, it gets us thinking about the traditional view that, you know, heaven is a place to which we will go one day. Number five, I have this question about hell. What about hell? Uh, it is often argued that heaven has to be brought down to earth because of the resurrection and that God's children will dwell in heaven in resurrected bodies. So there has to be some kind of earthly physical plane with some kind of physicality for that to, to happen, for bodies to inhabit that kind of place. That argument is made over and over and over again, and never does anybody talk about the resurrected wicked. And yet, in the New Testament, it's plainly stated that on the same day the righteous will be raised, the wicked will also be raised. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says that, and then Paul argues the same thing in Acts chapter 24, verse 15 that the wicked will be raised in bodies set for condemnation, but in bodies. Now, why is it that in order for the righteous resurrected bodies to dwell in heaven, God has to bring heaven down to earth, but when it comes to the wicked, they can go away to hell somewhere? I know there's there are all kinds of theories here about hell, that, you know, hell is a place where these bodies might be cast and annihilated. I don't believe that the Bible supports that idea either. I think the overwhelming uh, support goes towards an eternal existence in hell just as we expect an eternal life in heaven. You can look at how those are parallel in Matthew 25, verse 46. I looked at a book by a guy named Middleton who was very thorough on the position of the new heavens and the new earth. And he believed in the renewed earth and uh, had a lot of material. What's interesting is he doesn't really say a whole lot about hell and the resurrection of the wicked. He admits it's a problem, but he doesn't really bother to explain it. He doesn't try to convince people that, you know, the wicked will be annihilated or that hell is different from heaven in some way, he just kind of skips over it, which is a problem I have with proponents of the renewed earth theory is they have a few things they like to talk about, but they don't really address the concerns. And there are several concerns here. And before I'm convinced, I've got to have some answers to these questions. I want to know why heaven has to be brought down for resurrected bodies, but hell doesn't. I want to know where hell is supposed to be if heaven is supposed to be here. I think those are strong questions. And similar to that is a, is a, a sixth point. This is very similar. Heaven is apparently already suited for resurrected bodies. Jesus's body has already gone through this resurrection. And it's called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Um, also, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says that we shall be like him when he returns. 
our resurrected bodies will be made like his glorious body, will be transformed to be like his glorious body. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Verse after verse after verse says that our resurrected bodies will be like his resurrected body. Now, you'll remember when he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1 verse 11, angels appeared and asked why all of his disciples were gazing up at him as he ascended into heaven. And they said that he will return the same way that he ascended. But one thing that's really interested, interesting is that he ascended in this resurrected bodily state. Now, I don't mean to say that he resurrected in a physical body that is like our physical bodies now. There was something very, very different about Jesus' body after his resurrection. He was phasing through walls, appearing, vanishing, changing his appearance. He was doing all kinds of things that our bodies won't do in time and space. Uh, It wasn't limited by time and space. It doesn't seem the way our bodies are limited by time and space. That body is now in heaven. That glorified, resurrected, different spiritual body is in heaven right now. And it's coming from heaven to get us. So if Jesus' physical body can inhabit heaven, why can't ours? That That's my question. Um, here's another one I just thought of. This is my final question or concern. I'm not trying to argue so much as I'm just saying, here are some questions I have that need to be answered before I'm going to consider that this earth is just going to be renewed and not destroyed. So here's the seventh one. Heaven is described as eternal life. Uh, Matthew 25, 46 it's an eternal inheritance, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. So we shall always be or ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. I don't have to give you all the scripture references. I think everybody agrees who believes in heaven at all that it's a place forever. It's outside of space and time. And yet, how... How can you have this earth, even in a renewed state, outside of the space-time fabric? How is that possible? The earth orbits in time. It takes 365 days for it to go around the sun one time. It spins on its axis in a 24-hour period. It has a moon that revolves around it in a monthly cycle. You can set your watch to the Earth. It is very much in space and time. And that much is admitted by the proponents of the renewed Earth idea. Here's N.T. Wright. I said I'd read you another excerpt from him, and I want to read this from his biography on Paul. It's an interesting biography. Um, I think it's very good, but it seems like N.T. Wright can't write anything anymore without going back to this idea of the renewed earth. So here he is talking about uh, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians and addressing this idea. 
He says, It has been fashionable in, mo in modern times to imagine that the early Christians saw the coming judgment as the literal end of the world, the collapse and destruction of the planet and perhaps the entire cosmos as we know it. Well, it's not just the early Christians. We've seen the prophets and you know, Bible writers saw that as well. This letter, though full of lurid imagery, makes it clear. Notice how forceful he is in this. It makes it clear. It's not clear that that cannot be right. Paul warns the Thessalonians not to be unsettled by anyone saying or writing in a letter that purports to be by Paul that the day of the Lord has already arrived. The day of the Lord, in other words, the new Jesus-focused version of the ancient Israelite hope for the day of the Lord will not mean the end of the present space-time order. One would not expect to be informed of such a thing through the Roman postal system. As so often in Jewish writing of roughly this period, what sounds to us like the end of the world is used to denote and refer to things that we might call major world events, the sudden rise and fall of ruling powers, and the like, and to invest those events with their inner God-related significance. Now, I don't disagree with everything that he says there. He's right that the phrase, Day of the Lord, often refers to major world events infused with God-related significance. It's not always the end of the world. It's true that the Thessalonians had this idea that possibly the Day of the Lord had already come, and maybe they weren't thinking about the end of the world from their perspective. But Paul is telling them that the end of the world is not going to come before the man of lawlessness, lawlessness appears or before the falling away appears. And that's some stuff for a different podcast from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But here, here's what I really want to bring out from this excerpt. I don't know if you caught this, but Wright clearly says that he expects the new heaven and the new earth to be within space and time. He says it will not mean the end of the present space-time order. What is eternal life? What is eternity if it's not a state of being outside the space-time order? This view is not consistent with the phrase eternal life, eternal inheritance, eternal dwelling, eternity. It just doesn't come together. And so, I need these questions answered. Now, before I cut this off, I went longer than I usually go, but I have to say this. Should we be divided over this? Should it be a contentious discussion? Should it be a test of fellowship? Is it okay for us to worship with people with whom we disagree about the nature of heaven? We should not divide over this because none of us knows with certainty what heaven is going to be like. We've just been given a glimpse here or there, just enough, just what God needs us to know, maybe only what we can understand, so that we'll live today like we're going to that place. Poet Tony Hoagland said something about language that I really think applies here. He said, language will stretch just so much and no farther. There are some holes it will not cover up. And we're looking up, we're looking here at a hole 
that language won't cover up. Language, human language and understanding is not capable of understanding eternity and life with God after this life. It's just not going to happen. For that reason, I don't think we should be divided over this. I think we can have disagreements and conversations and actually enjoy these conversations because no matter where you land on this, whether you with me believe the current world order, the cosmos will be completely annihilated and we will go to a new heaven and a new earth that's not here, or you believe that God is going to bring his dwelling place to our dwelling place in a renewed state, either position says heaven is going to be completely different than this. It's going to be forever. It's going to be devoid of crying and sorrow and death and pain. Either position winds up in the same place. It's just a question of location. And to me, I don't care where it is. I just want to be there because that's where God is going to be. Don't we're so divided on so many things and Christians are so that we're, we're such the minority I'm not talking about nominal Christianity I'm talking about Christians who are faithful and committed to the Lord we're in the minority we don't need to weaken ourselves further over something that you know we actually all agree on which is heaven is a place we're going to live with God there and we're gonna live now like that's a reality that's what it all comes down to and conversations like this should make us want to work harder towards that end and have more faith and trust in Jesus even more and thank God for his grace even more it shouldn't cause contention and division, and hatred, and spite. I hope that this has stimulated your thinking. I hope it's been interesting to you. I'm looking forward next time to get into Jacob, the favored cheat. Stick with us until then on Wide Margins.